Here we are, May the 17th, 2015, lecture discussion number 198, and I need to begin by informing the vast internet audience that Clipside will be in hiding for the next two weeks, May the 24th and May the 31st. And by in hiding, I mean the King Salmon are going to be in Deep Creek, and the hooligan are peaking as well, and uh, clams are, are not good this year, apparently, but... Um, uh, you know, Steve Cronister dies from paralytic sepoid poisoning. That's murder. I did not eat that stuff. Somebody poisoned me the same as they use antifreeze. It's just go hunt them down. Uh, usually it's the wife, just a hint, you know, for the huge, the huge insurance payoff and the estate. Okay, that may not be the case here. <laughs> but nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> paralytic seafood poisoning is murder, as it applies to me. But that's where the Cliffside faithful will be found. For you folks in the internet, uh, they're certainly not going to be at Anchorage, so once again, we will be conceding our services to the lure of the pursuit of fish. Thanks, Ben, for laughing at that. Um, but uh, I didn't even have to finish it. He was already with me at lure. So Anyway... All of those people, all of you, are absolved of guilt. I hereby bless your endeavors on the caveat, on the condition that you all realize that I have no such power. And uh, absolution, just to get myself in trouble on the internet, absolution is an exclusive province of God, Jesus Christ. Any man who advertises the power to exculpate another is a liar and a thief. Uh, not necessarily in that order, but uh, conceal your money nonetheless. Okay, speaking of protecting your money, i got a couple of rabbit trails here this morning. People like those the best. Uh, I had a nice, a very nice internet person who asked to remain nameless. Please don't tell them my name, she said. Don't even let them know my name at all, much less what state I'm in. <laughs> That, that cracks me up, actually. Well, a very nice internet person sent me this article, which I brought. Uh, I brought it today, and, and because a while back I discussed this, um, as you may remember, the governments of the world, the governments of countries, are inclined. They have. Uh, they're predisposed. They want to eliminate all physical currency, both in their country and any country. They want to replace the same now with the technology that it's accumulating. They want to replace it with digital accounting. And the reason for that is, as we discussed a few weeks ago, that one of the biggest reasons that they give is for the negative interest rate capability. And the, uh, they can control economies that way. And as you are very much away, aware, I'm sorry, the rendering of uh, physical currency uh, or the rendering of it uh, non-existent, that is an end times event. The Bible is very clear. At the end of the age of the Gentiles, there will not be physical currency. Now, it isn't said that way. It's Revelation 13, 17, but it is clear that that is the case because here's what it does say. No one may buy or sell except those who have the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. In other words, complete control of all economies. 
All commerce is going to be controlled by the son of perdition, the man of sin. And the Bible is unequivocal. It states that as definitively as as you can state it. And it's been an impossibility. No one has ever thought it was possible. There's no way that, that a single man could control all economic commerce worldwide. Until when? Last 10, 12, 15, maybe 20 years. Our current technology makes this absolutely possible, if not imminent. Whoever wrote this Bible sure is lucky. Have you noticed? Absolutely lucky. Okay. God is outside of time. And this is a, this is a time mark for us. When we as Christians, when you can see the economic system getting centralized, that tells you the end of the age of the Gentiles is very close. I'm going to read a little bit of this article. Let me find it here. I'm fascinated by it, as you know, because I'm a, a watcher. I want you to be designated watchers of the signs of the ends of the age of the Gentiles as well. You should know that the ultimate end of the absolute, absolute I'm sorry, the abolition of currency, that what the design purpose is. So when somebody says to you, isn't it a good idea that we abolish all physical currency? You can say, well, the purpose of that is this. It's obviously this. So let me read it to you. Oh, I'm taking my glasses off with little tiny words. A proposed new law in Denmark could be the first step towards an economic revolution that sees physical currencies and normal bank accounts abolished and gives governments futuristic new tools. Yes, so indeed, futuristic. To fight the cycle of boom and bust. See, this is all going to be good for you. Is that boom and bust cycle, that's really bad, right? That correction... All that economic corrective uh, characteristic, we need to get rid of that. The Danish proposal sounds innocuous enough on the surface. No, it doesn't sound innocuous. Maybe to these guys. It would simply allow shops to refuse payments. See, that's how they do it, right? You go to a shop with cash, and they refuse to accept your cash. You go to the grocery store with cash, they say, no, we don't take cash here. What is your alternative? It would simply allow shops to refuse payment in cash and insist that customers use contactless debit cards or some other means of electronic payment. Oh, let's say an implant of some sort. Where shall we put it? Officially, the aim is to ease administrative and financial burdens. Of course it is. Such as the cost of hiring a security service. We know how much those cost. Um, to send cash to the bank and is part of a program, program of reforms aimed at boosting growth. There is evidence that high cash usage in an economy acts as a drag. That's right, you have to carry it. You have to move it. You have to count it. But the move could be a key moment in the advent of cashless societies. And once all money exists only in bank accounts, monitored or even directly controlled by the government, I guarantee you it will be controlled by the government. The authorities will be able to encourage us to spend more when the economy slows or spend less when it is overheating. This may all sound far-fetched, not to anyone that's read Revelations. 
But the idea has been developed in some detail by a Norwegian academic, Trond Andresen. In this futuristic world, all payments are made by contactless card, mobile phone apps, or other electronic means, while notes and coins are abolished. Your current account will no longer be held with the bank, but with the government or the central bank. Notice that phrase. Banks will exist and will still lend money, but they get their funds from the central bank, not from depositors. Do you hear that word, central bank, those words? Having everyone's account, let me repeat that, having everyone's account at a single central institution, Revelation 13, 17, allows the authorities, by the way, those little comments about Revelation aren't in here. They should be. Allows the authorities to either encourage or discourage people to spend. To boost spending, the bank imposes a negative interest rate. Absolutely will work because if there's a negative interest rate on your savings, uh, they're confiscating it. Say there's a negative interest rate of twenty percent. You'll rush to the you'll rush to the store to buy something. What will you try to buy? Ammunition, food. They'll be ready for that. By the way, if they control your account, they control what your account is used utilized for. Right? That's what happened in Germany. People would begin to uh, hoard food. They were able to track the hoarding of food. What did they do to the people that they convicted of hoarding food? They lined them up and shot them. Negative interest rates is a tax on savings. Faced with seeing their money slowly confiscated, people are more likely to spend it. Absolutely. When this change in behavior takes place across the country, the economy gets a significant boost. We, everyone would be panicked. All they have to do is keep raising the negative interest. Raising, actually. Uh, you have to think about negative interest being larger. If they keep making the negative interest rate higher, uh, your money is gone. And so your motivation to spend that money on anything very high, isn't it? Think of the panic. Money circulates more quickly, the article goes on to say, or as economists like to, um, like to use this term, the velocity of money increases. What about the opposite situation? When the economy is overheating, the central bank or government will certainly drop any negative interest on credit balances, but it could go further and impose a tax on transactions. So they, if you're spending too much money, they will tax your spending. Wherever you use the money in your account to buy something or whenever, you, you will pay a penalty. That makes people less inclined to spend and more inclined to save, so reducing economic activity. Such an approach would be far more effective way to dampen overheated economy than today's blunt tool of a rise in the central bank's official interest rate. If this sounds rather fanciful, not to me it doesn't, it sounds exactly what's going to happen. And we should watch for it. It has been predicted for thousands of years. If this sounds rather fanciful, negative interest rates already exist in Denmark. Of course they do. Where the central bank charges depositors uh, 0.75% a year. I'm sorry, 0.075% a year, I'm sure is what they meant. And in Switzerland. At the moment, it's easy for individuals to avoid seeing their money eroded this way. But they can simply hold uh, banknotes. So, in other words, they can't Right now, you can store cash, right? You put it in a safe, you can put it in a safety deposit box, you can put it in your mattress, you can take out a, uh, a storage facility, you can hide your money that way. But if there is no cash, 
There is no escape. Apart from the control over the economy, there would be many other advantages to a cashless society. Oh, yes, there would. Such a system is much cheaper to run. Based on banknotes and coins, forgeries is impossible. Robberies are impossible. What else is impossible? Taxes. Tax avoidance is impossible. The black market. Tax evasion. All impossible. Uh, This article was the 13th of May, 2015. In case you think I reached back to find it. And isn't that a special idea? A worldwide central bank where every account in the entire world resides in this one place. No escape. How convenient. Black market economies destroyed. Now, let's ask some questions. Who do we suppose will be the ruler of this worldwide central bank? Who controls it? Where will this, let me use a phrase that the Bible uses, economic Babylon be located? Well, let's go find out. Revelation 18. Two verses here. Start in verse 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice. An angel came down from heaven and having great authority. And, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Economic Babylon is prophesied to be destroyed by God at Revelation 18. Let me go to Revelation 18.9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her. When they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys with their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple silk and scarlet, every kind of wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble and cinnamon and incense, fragrance, oil and frankincense, sheep, horses, chariots, bodies and souls of men. The fruit of your soul longed, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all. In one hour, economic Babylon is made desolate. The kings, the merchants, the trans porters of the merchandise will suddenly be swiftly in one hour reduced to nothing. That's what Revelation 18 says. All of their wealth utterly burned. And they're going to be weeping and lamenting and they know it says it says God has avenged you. They know that God has avenged his people. Point is is that God is not going to tolerate a central bank He destroys it, burns it. Ask why? 
Well, obviously, it's a wicked method designed by depraved man, and it accomplishes great evil. Why is it evil? We need, we need to know why it's evil. How does it accomplish its evil? In other words, what's Satan's plan here? Why does he say, one of the things I am going to do, the Antichrist and Satan, one of the things we're going to do is set up a worldwide central economic system and control all buying and selling. And you'll have to have a mark in order to, and the mark, by the way, is demonstrative of your worship of the Antichrist as God. It's a religious, a religious accounting, if you will. It's a religious statement. But God is not going to, to uh, tolerate it. And I'm telling you that I think by reading that article, and articles like it a few weeks ago, I, I'm telling you, we're seeing its birth, the genesis of a worldwide central bank. And as I said earlier, I'm always fascinated by those who advocate for it. And they want to get rid of the purge. They want to see the purging of physical currency. And I always ask them, don't you know that that's great evil? Can't you see the corruption that's going to occur here? The control? If I make it so that you cannot buy or sell food, you can't buy water, you can't buy seeds, you can't buy anything. How much control do I have over you? You're completely helpless. The the, the folks that are out there in the woods surviving off the land, they're going to be okay. The people that congregate in cities, they're trapped. But I ask, can't you see the corruption and the control that's inherent in this process? And the answer is always the same. The answer back to me is no. The answer is no. They can't see it. They're blind to it. Absolutely blind. Find one and talk to them. By the way, today, blindness is a theme. So I'll put it on the board. Who well, add the blindness. No. I actually have themes in my lectures. I hide them very carefully. People will write to me every now and then and say, what was the theme? Do you know there was a church here? This is not worth even saying. But there was a church here where we would all sit in the back of the building and we would get out our dollar and we'd put it in a little hat or a box, whatever we had to have. There's six or seven of us, maybe ten by the time it really got going. We'd all put that and, and no one was, was, it was all the honor system. We were on the inside of the church hierarchy. I happened to be an employee of the church at the time. And I see Katrina is here, so I have to be careful about what I say so that it doesn't come back to me. But uh, we would guess as to what the letter of the sermon of the week was. Not guess, we would gamble. Was it going to be R? R was the favorite. Redemption, resurrection, you know, you know. Yes, salvation, sanctification. But there was always usually three or four things, and the, and the sermons went with letters, and we would gamble on what the letter would be. I, of course, have copied that. I have a theme. And to guess, we could play guess the theme here, but I hide it so well you would never know. But this week's theme, I'm giving it to you, it's blindness in case you're gambling. Who got, gam- who got blindness? No one. But people on the Internet, they are, they are, they are nothing but cynical. And they won't. They will let me know when they have anticipated today's thing. Okay, 
The answer, uh, people cannot see that a central bank will be evil. They cannot. You cannot reason with them over it. They are willfully blind to it. They want a, a central bank. And, and they cannot understand why I would oppose to it. There are two kinds of people politically now in our country, I, I think. Those who love to be controlled and those who don't. And then, of course, there's the love-to-be-controlled ally, the ones who want to control. And I tell you, that is the opposite of of what the Bible says. Man controlling you is not what you should be doing. Uh, You should be self-control is evidence of the Holy Spirit. But there's this willful blindness to a central economic system and the abolition of physical currency. And only wise, only the wise are going to understand this. And I want you to be the wise. That's Daniel 12.9. And uh, many times I get asked, because I deal with this a lot, about the anatomy of the worldwide central bank. What I mean by that, what will be the steps? How will it come into fruition? How will it come into existence? What will be the sequence or the order of events that resolves into this conclusion or this product that is a worldwide central bank? Well, it's my belief that the way it's going to happen is that uh, individual currencies, which means individual countries, begin to uh, become insolvent at an accelerated rate. In other words, they degrade into junk status. And the ones that are in junk status uh, affect the ones that have accrued that debt. In other words, if I owe you a bunch of, let's just use an example, if you happen to, I have sold you a Chicago um, municipal bonds. Are you aware that the city of Chicago, their school system is in junk status now? So is their municipal pensions. They're in junk status. So if you bought a municipal bond with Chicago, you have a worthless piece of paper. And if you gave it to me as collateral so that I could buy a car, for example, I loaned it, I gave you the junk bond and you gave me, uh, you put it into a collateralized account or pledged mortgage, for example, then you have nothing and I still have debt, right? But Greece is in this position. Uh, Italy is very close. Greece is on the precipice, could fall at any moment. Spain will be the domino to Italy. Italy might be the domino to Greece. Obviously, everybody's uh, familiar with Zimbabwe. As one or more falls, the dominoes cause panic. Panic sends these entities to uh, print more cash. And then they print larger denominations because they don't have the paper to print the small denominations. And they attempt to monetize their debt. You know what I mean by monetizing the debt? As Germany in World, after the World War I, post-World War I. Instead of a... If I owe you $100,000 and I can print $100,000 and hand it to you, it costs me 20 bucks in paper to print something that I tell you is worth $100,000. That's monetizing my debt. I didn't go out and actually earn cash that had, um, that had tangible collateral to it. I printed uncollateralized junk. That's what, by the way, you don't have to do it much today because of the digital alternative. Become aware of what quantitative easing is. That's the contemporary terminology. Ask this question. How would China react if the United States, we owe them a trillion and some odd dollars, maybe two trillion by now. How would they react 
if the United States uh, came to them with freshly manufactured uh, trillion dollar bills and handed them ten or five or two, whatever the debt would be. Here, here's a trillion dollars. We just printed it. We're now even. How's that going to go over? What happens to the dollar if the world market, let's just take it on a smaller scale, uh, instead of printing trillion dollar bills, the United States begins to print 50 trillion U.S. hundred dollar bills and just floods the world, pays off all their debt with that. It's, it's no different than monopoly. If you're playing monopoly and you've got most of the money because you're the banker, when no one's looking, you steal ten, twenty dollars out of the bank, and you think you're getting away with it. But we installed cameras at my house. <laughs> we didn't trust the bankers. But you've got it all, and then somebody—you're doing really good. You've got hotels. You're wiping everybody out, and then somebody recognizes the. Um, there's another monopoly set over here. They just reach over in that monopoly set and pull out all the. Thousand dollar, five thousand, whatever. I don't have to play Monopoly much anymore, but they get as much money out of it as they can, and they all of a sudden have more money than you. What did they do to the value of your money, or your Monopoly money? They immediately cut it in half of its value. Well, that's what would be happening if the U.S. flooded and began to print so much money, which we do. What does the United States do with the money it prints? It buys stocks and bonds. How's the stock market doing? Fantastic. How come? Government's buying stocks. What are they paying for the stocks with? Well, they push a button. They don't even bother to print it now. They just say they have it. Hi, we have it. That is the precursor to a collapse of physical currency. My point is, is that if the dollar is ruined, if it is worthless, if it is not acceptable, uh, what's going to be Greece's currency? Who would accept Zimbabwe's money? And what's going to solve a crisis like this if it, if it begins to occur? Well, the one thing that will do it is a worldwide central digital bank. A digital economic system would make the monetizing of debt impossible. Thereby, it's going to protect the lending companies, countries, if you will, from the borrowing countries. So would China and Japan vote for that? Absolutely they will. So I want you to watch for this. This is happening every day. There's an article on negative interest rate, on digital currency, on the abolition of physical currency, on destroying the black market, on destroying forgery, on getting rid of tax evasion, on getting rid of any kind of uh, economic fraud. Every day. Be vigilant. I predict that electronic currency is upon us. We have a whole generation that hasn't even, that just goes around with a card. We had a girl, I guess, get shoot out at a Starbucks. I would never experience that. Steve Chronister shot dead in a Starbucks. They dragged me there. That's murder. Don't do that. I'm not going to pay $20 for, a, what, a, a cream-filled cup of coffee. Not going to happen. I have Diet Coke. I'm happy. But I predict that electronic... But anyway, the girl goes in there. She's going to pay for her coffee with her phone, which is, I guess, something... I don't have one of these phones. 
Steve Conister's iPhone blows up in his pocket and kills him. That's murder. One more time. It didn't happen. Hunt him down. Um, but she was going to pay with her phone, and the clerk did not understand that she was busily uh, doing her economic transaction on her phone and started screaming at her for taking up the line's time or something. I don't know. Didn't read the article that closely. My point is, is that we have an entire generation of young people that have grown up using phones and cards to pay for things. Uh, where, as you know, people my age have grew up with a big wad of cash, mostly $1 bills. And we've wound it up really tight and made it look big. So uh, uh, I predict that all that's missing, all that we're waiting for is the triggering circumstance and we'll have a central worldwide bank. And everyone will cheer. Don't cheer. Evil is coming. On that happy thought, how is the nuclear proliferation of the Middle East going? Huh? Quite well, if you want proliferation. All the nations are rushing to Pakistan to buy bombs and to China and Korea to buy delivery mechanisms. And that was, I hope, obvious to anyone with a brain. Unfortunately, the U.S. State Department uh, does not have a brain. It has a proclivity to employ amateurs. And that has having its inevitable consequences. Here's a surprise to no one. The Saudis... Uh, Saudi Arabia has tremendous wealth, substantial wealth. Guess what they've been financing? They financed and are currently financing the Pakistani nuclear weapons program. They probably own it. I know how shocking. Obviously the Saudis thought ahead, didn't they? Uh, and there's some, I, I don't have time to read it, uh, but there's a wonderful article. I'll just read this part. Uh, Prince uh, Turkey bin Fazl, the 70-year-old former Saudi intelligence chief, has been touring the world with the same message. Whatever the Iranians have, we will have too. He said in Seoul, South Korea, in a conference. Why? He's just a few hundred miles from North Korea. For the Saudis and other Arab states, the only source of nuclear weapons is North Korea and Pakistan. By leaving 5,000 centrifuges and a growing research and development program in place in Iran, the features of the proposed deal that Israel and the Arab states oppose virulently, sorry, our President, Mr. Obama, is essentially recognizing Iran's right to continue enrichment of uranium, the pathway to a nuclear weapon. And they say it's going to be within two months. Not ten years, two months. By the way, the Saudis not only financed uh, Pakistan's nuclear weapons program, but they also, since the 1980s, they bought Chinese missiles. And what was the purpose of the Chinese missiles? They're large and they're cumbersome. It's the only thing they could do. They're too large and too inaccurate except for one purpose. You don't have to be accurate in nuclear bombing. It's not horseshoes. You just got to get within the same country. There's no evidence that the Saudis ever got the warheads, um, but they, they have the missiles. Here's what the Prince Turkey, this, the Saudi prince said. He said, the United States has pivoted to Iran. In other words, the United States is blessing the Iran nuclear system. And that that is ill-advised. 
and that the United States failed to learn from North Korea. And this is what he said. We were America's best friend in the Arab world for 50 years. America's best friend apparently now is Iran, according to the Saudis. So, there you have it, as everyone foresaw. Anyone with a modicum of understanding of Middle East political dynamics knew that the the stampede to acquire a deliverable nuclear weapon was going to happen if the United States did not stop the Iranians. In fact, the United States has blessed the Iranians. And so that rushes on. And it's plain for all of us to watch. And if two months is an accurate timeline for Iran, then what are the Saudis doing? How fast do they want to move? They're obviously going to come in in one month and 29 days, right? And so will the other Arab states. And imagine it this way, if you want to, if you will. Uh, you got two mortal enemies, and they're in a small room, and each one of them has a table. And in front of them on the table, pick whatever weapon of choice. It could be a handgun or it could be an AR-15. But they've got to dis- reassemble it. It's in pieces. And they're in a rush. The first one to get his rifle or his pistol assembled, his firearm, if he the first one to get that done and loaded. So it's it's a race. And they can see each other. And they're fervent, furiously working. And the first one that gets his gun assembles is going to kill the other one, and they both know it. There isn't, hey, stop. Because to allow your sworn enemy the capability to destroy you is not an option in the Middle East, as I've said many times. This is an irrational, apocalyptic area. These regimes are crazy. And they get more crazy. And they are going to use these weapons offensively. These are not deterrence-based systems they're building. These are one-way tickets. And so preemption is the only alternative to ensure survival. And the Saudis know it and everyone that is on the side of the Saudis. The first to assemble will be the first to launch. They must in order to prove they can. No one believes anyone in in the Middle East. The first liar doesn't have a chance over there, and everyone knows that everyone knows. So all that remains to be determined is to see who can fire before the other, and and who else is in the room, by the way, over there. Israel's in the room. They're standing over to the side. Have they assembled their firearm? Oh, yeah. They got a big one. And they're watching these two groups try to kill each other. And there they are. Now, if you're in that race to assemble the firearm and somebody is over there that has one, what would you do? You would try to be his friend, just in case what? You lose. Is Iran trying to be Israel's friend? No. Our State Department, uh, it's impossible to even imagine this, but our State Department has managed to make the Saudis friends with the Israelis. That's an amazing thing. I'm stunned. They didn't do it intentionally. But again, anyone who could read history could figure out what's going on. So here we sit now. We're watching all of this. we got maybe two months. I'm hearing commentator after commentator, expert after expert say two months. Iran's going to have a deployable, deliverable system with a nuclear warhead on it. 
And I'm wondering what's Israel going to do? Is it going to take out Iran? Because I have Ezekiel 38 back here. Another Bible prophecy that is looming. Will the Saudis, uh, will they develop a nuclear weapon? And if they do, can, you, can we trust the Saudis with that kind of destructive capability? Absolutely not. So, to recap, who's the quickest draw in the gunfight between Saudis, Saudi Arabia and Iran? I vote, I suspect, it's Iran. Therefore, what's Israel going to do? Who will the Saudis shoot first? I'm sorry, the Iranians shoot first. If they beat the Saudis to a weapon, knowing that the Saudis get one, the Saudis would kill them. And Israel is the room in the room. Will they attack the Israelis first or will they attack the Saudi Arabians first? Will the Saudi Arabians, the question for Israel becomes one of calculated risk. If Iran deploys against Saudi Arabia, Israel then what? They, mo- they enter in, don't they? And Iran would anticipate that. Where if the Saudis prevail, the urgency for Iran- Israel is greatly reduced. But the Saudis feel they have no choice. If they get a nuclear weapon first, they have to use it on Iran. And everybody knows that everybody knows. So how much time? We shall see. But the sign of the nation of Israel is upon us. The Ezekiel 38 portion of that sign of the nation of Israel is very, very near. So is the forming of a central bank, an economic Babylon. It's happening every day. It's astonishing to be alive. Okay, so that was fun, huh? Don't we feel better? <laughs> uh, the theme is blind. So what's on the board? Well, behold, the man has become like one of us. Remember that from last week? Let's knock some of these out since we're going to be gone. Genesis 3.22. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good from evil. Now that's a behold. Remember that from last week? Behold, the man has become like one of us. Who's the us in that sentence? Who's the one in that sentence? God is speaking that and he's talking about the man. Adam, let me read it this way, perfectly acceptable. Behold, the Adam has become like one of us, to know good from evil. And I asked last week, is that a good thing to be like God or not? I'm thinking that's a good thing. But the question becomes, he knows good from evil. So, what's what's the question here? What's he know? He knows a good, I notice how I singularized it, that's the word, from evil. I made it singular, that's that for better English. He knows a good, he has become like one of us, he knows good from evil. So I want to know, what specifically, what specific good does he know, and what specific evil does the man know now? Okay, so that's where we were in Genesis 20, I'm sorry, last week in Genesis 3.22. And then I had the sign of Lot's wife. And I have the sign of Noah that we have to get to today. That's Luke 21, 34 through 36, Luke 17, 26 through 32, and Matthew 24, 36 through 44. <coughs> and then I have 
the sign of the seas. I've been saying taken, uh, but I could just as easily say seized bride. So the, these signs are out there for us. But Christ says to us, God says to us, remember Lot's wife. There's something about Lot's wife that we're supposed to know. That's going to be very helpful to us as we go through the end of the age of the Gentiles. If we are the last generation, we, he says, remember Lot's wife. Who's he talking to? What are we supposed to remember? What is it about the time of Noah? What's going on at Noah's time? And we're supposed to look at that and understand how that applies to us. And the seized bride, the sign of the seized bride. And I've asked for weeks now, what is the aftermath characteristic of the seizing of the bride? By that I mean, who witnessed it? By that I mean, who knows it happened? Who knows the bride has been seized in the world? And I have been inferring that very few people know. So it happens, and it happens in a way that hardly anyone knows. I think that's uh, the more correct position uh, because of that theme. Remember today's theme? Blindness. There is blindness. I'm going to go through the Bible and find a place that may be talking about the rapture and find out if blindness is there. And that will help me understand it. And finally, last, oh, oh, I'm sorry, we also got into the, the lump, the root, the olive tree, and the natural branches and the wild branches of Romans 11. And finally, uh, the sign of circumcision is always a favorite here at Cliffside. So. so today, let's take another run at the sign of Noah, the sign of Lot, and the sign of Lot's wife. I forgot Lot, Lot's in here too. So I have those three signs. Matthew, again, 24, Luke 21, and Luke 17. And let me say this really fast. There's a lot of debate here. A great deal of debate occurs with these passages. That's a nice way of saying lots of people disagree with me. And I just don't understand it. I'm stunned by that, but they do. Bless their little hearts. And what do we say about people that disagree with me? That's right, they're wrong. That's a joke, you folks on the internet. No one laughs here either, though. Uh, but many scholars have attempted to reconcile Matthew 24, 36 through 44, Luke 21, 34 through 36, and Luke 17, 26 through 37. They have tried to make those fit together. And they have decided, and many, the overwhelming, have concluded that it's best to leave them unresolved and wait until they are revealed or as they occur. Some will will put Matthew 24 and Luke 21 together and they'll do a really nice job, but they leave out Luke 17 because they can't figure out how to make it fit with Matthew 24. And I admit there is an element of difficulty here. Things do not seem to fit neatly into place. And what do I think that means? I think that means something really cool is here. Especially with Lot's wife. It's Lot's wife they have the biggest problems with. Jesus Christ, that's God himself, is saying, remember Lot's wife. Does he know what he's talking about? Yes. So does it fit? Absolutely it does. So if you don't think it fits, or if I don't think it fits, by the way, I do think it fits. If you don't think it fits, then the problem is not with God, is it? 
Figure out how it fits instead of focusing on how you think it doesn't fit. Okay, that would be the first place to go. But especially Lot's wife, she is without controversy the most mysterious aspect of these verses, which is why she's my favorite. But as I am usually one to do, I believe it's especially valuable to wade into these areas where these mysterious components reside and flail away. If nothing else, because in doing so, um, in my opinion, that's a very fruitful thing. So, what do we know about Matthew 24? Let's go take a look at Matthew 24. So go to Matthew 24. Ah, We know that Matthew 24, uh, 36 is important because it starts with the word but. So... Whenever you see that in the Bible, you can tell yourself something is changing. That means 27 uh, all the way to 35 is about one subject, and 36 now is a change of subjects. So the subject in 30 or 27, if you will, um, 24-27 is about the second coming or the return of Christ. That means that 36, verse 36, is a change. Matthew 24:36 is not about his return. Here's what it says, but of that day and hour no one knows. Wow, I know what it's about now, don't I? What's it about? Everything up to that point, you can read it here, let's go quickly. Verse 29, or verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east to the west and flashes to the west, west so also will be, will be the coming of the Son of Man. For wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the suns will be dark and the moon will not give its light. To st- so that's tribulational. After the tribulational, the lightning comes, Christ returns physically on the Mount of Olives. That's what he's talking about until he gets to verse 36. And then he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. He's not talking about the return. Everyone knows when he's returning. It's just gone through the tribulation. They could see all the signs. They have an angel come down and lights up the whole earth. Everyone knows. You can figure it out to the day. 1260 plus 30. Plus 75, 1,335 days to the end of the blessing of the 75-day interval. I can do the math. I know exactly when he's coming. I've got Daniel. But of that day and hour, no one knows. So what day and hour does no one know about? The seizing of the bride. So now in Matthew, we're no longer talking about the return. We're talking about the seizing of the bride. And that, by the way, is the ninth step. That's the language of the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. He doesn't mean that he doesn't know. He's telling you that that the seizing of the bride is based on the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Because in the Hebrew betrothal ceremony of the twelve steps, the groom turns to the bride and says, No one knows the day or the hour except my father. It's the language of that ceremony. It does not mean that Christ doesn't know. Don't be silly. He's God. Duh. He's telling you what this is about. So, what we have here is this language that now comes. Let me read it for you. For as in the days before the flood, 
Oh, I mean, but as, as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be on the seizing of the bride. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken and the other left. It's about the taking. Right? Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. He talks about a thief after that. So, I have the sign of the seizing of the bride being discussed here. And God, as he often does, Christ, as he often does, places two or more, more distinct events into one presentation. He talks about his return, and then he, ta- I'm sorry, yeah, his return, and then he talks about the seizing of the bride back to back. And if you think, if you don't see the word but, and you don't recognize that ninth step language, you might think the whole thing is about the return. And now you would be in trouble. It becomes for us to sort it out, to make the, the correct assignations, right? Put the stuff into the proper category. What I read to you in Matthew 24, 36 through 44, I know quickly. You can see why, because I'm looking at the clock. It's a sudden separation. That's talking about suddenness. Things are going to happen suddenly. How did the flood come in Noah's time? It came suddenly. They never saw it coming. So the events of Matthew 24, 36 through uh, 44 is a sudden event, just like the sign of Noah. One of the signs of Noah is suddenness. Unpreparedness. An unpreparedness aspect emphasized. Some will be ready, most will be unaware. The return of Christ, again, is not described as suddenness, as uh, people being unaware. The entire world knows Christ is returning. They see him come in the sky. They watch him slowly come. A massive army is compiled, is waiting to confront him, assembled to confront him. They're waiting for him to come. They think they're going to kill God. They're such idiots. By the way, what is that? That's blindness. You think you're going to kill God. The flood was sudden. What else was sudden in the Bible? Sudden come, sudden boom, and just nobody saw it coming. Ooh, look here. Lot and Noah. Lot and Lot's wife, Sodom, was sudden. Let me read you Genesis 19:16, Because I've read it many times. But I know I have to go over it again. There are people just joining in. And so i got to kind of help them along a little. So they'll stay with us. When the morning dawned, the angels, who were the angels here that came to Lot, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, so we'll think that through a second. You're sitting in your house with your kids. The angels come to you and say, hurry up, Steve, get out of here. And I go, hang on, my favorite show's on. 
I gotta watch Jeopardy. See if I win. What is making Lot linger? How about this? Who is making Lot linger? Why is who making Lot winger? Linger, winger, whatever word that is. You know what I meant. Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men, those are the angels, took hold of his hand, took hold of his wife's hand, and took hold of the hands of his two daughters. So the angels grabbed them by the hands and took them. And the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him and out and set him outside the city. Okay. Oh, I have a note to read 1911. Oh, and they struck the men. So Lot, remember, if you remember the story, is surrounded by men, old men. How old are they? I'm saying hundreds of years old. How did they get that way? Genetic modifications. They were intelligent men. They understood how to extend their lives. And they struck the men who were at the doorway. Who struck them? The angels did. At the doorway of the house with blindness. So the men surrounded Lot. The angels pulled Lot inside the house and made everybody outside the door blind. So they couldn't see. And then they grabbed them by the hands and they took them out. Arise. Grabbed you by the hand. If you want to think of it, they shouted to rise. So I want you to see in Lot's situation, there is sudden destruction. Comes very quickly. No one's aware it's even happening. And there is blindness. Suddenness and blindness. So that's very helpful now to figuring out Lot's wife. So, let's talk about the seizing of the bride. Does anyone see it coming? No, it's sudden. What's the obvious question now? Does anyone know it came? If it is just like Sodom, what do they have? Blindness. So our two characteristics of the seizing of the bride, suddenness and blindness, you decide. While I move on to read Luke 17. In that day, he was on the housetop and his possessions are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Who's Christ talking to right here? He's talking to Israel. And he says to Israel, remember Lot's wife. Why doesn't he say, remember Lot, or remember Lot's daughters? He doesn't. He says, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife has a sign. And two elements of the sign of Lot's wife, as with the sign of Lot, are suddenness and blindness. And he's telling Israel, you need to watch for suddenness and blindness, especially as it portrays to a woman. You need to remember the woman, Lot's wife. Warning to Israel, at the end of the age of the Gentiles, during the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, 
in the in the build up to the tribulation. Remember Lot's wife. That will help you. You know who she is. If you know why she does, why she does it. If you know, by the way, that the angels took her by the hand. How did she get free? The angels have her by the hand. Does she work her way free? Wiggle? Angels can't hold her. Oh, she's too tough. How's this work? Is it your position? And this, I ask this all the time, so don't take it personally. It doesn't mean anybody here. You is a generic term. Probably refers to somebody on the internet that doesn't like me. Is it your position that she got away from the angels? The angels were not strong enough to save her completely. They were only able to drag her a little bit away and then she got loose and gave up her salvation and ran back and died and was condemned. Is that your position? Because you got some problems right there, boys and girls. That can't be right. And if that were true, would Christ say to the nation of Israel, during the time when they are under tremendous persecution, death, tribulation, remember Lot's wife. Something about Lot's wife they're supposed to remember. Why are they supposed to remember it? We'll solve that and win. 7th of June. Let's rise and be dismissed. Musicians, come forward.